hello everybody welcome to the ccysc podcast today i'm here with dr sylvia nesson and uh, i'll let her uh, talk a bit more about uh, the work she does where she did her work before and where she's at right now so yeah so uh kia ora koutou, everyone um i'm sylvia nesson i'm based at Lincoln University in Ōtautahi Christchurch, uh, so, or just outside of uh, Christchurch in New Zealand. And so a lot of my work is based looking at uh, young people in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and I guess some of the particular challenges um, that they face today. So uh, I guess there's sort of several streams of work that I've been involved in. The first of them uh, was really through my PhD work, which was around uh, university students' political action, and it kind of emerged from, um, I mean, at least in New Zealand, there's some very strong, I guess almost <laughs> mythical status of, of the student protest, especially from the 60s, and that will be familiar to a lot, a lot of other listeners, I'm sure. Um, and against that backdrop, student political action in New Zealand was often framed as being something that was characterised by apathy. And the absence of action was sort of um, given prominence rather than what was there. And so um, my doctoral research involved uh, me basically doing a big road trip around all the universities in New Zealand, which being a small country, we can actually do. Um, And uh, I just spoke to students, really a cross-section of the student body. So um, left-wing, right-wing, loves politics, hates politics. and asked them about the issues that they cared about, um, what uh, their reflections on the political system, and and also their reflections on, I guess, being part of uh, the community, however they defined it. And uh, so from that, I really, um, I guess, wrote about politics uh, in the space where there was considered to be an absence of, of political action. And uh, so that was kind of one piece of work, and coming out of that work was uh, some research around student debt. And this um, basically started as asking a question um, in interviews, and I I just asked, you know, basically, um, how has debt affected you and your friends, uh, or your friends? And I got so much from that question, um, and I answered further questions after, uh, asked further questions after that, obviously. Um, but yeah, I got so much data from that that I sort of did a side project that came out after my PhD. Um, so looking at um, the impact on debt for students' well-being, but particularly also debt on their political participation and their civic engagement. Um, and yeah, I guess I've done quite a fair bit of work in that space since, um, mostly because there's very little work in the space in uh, New Zealand. We're not like other countries that have high levels of student debt because whereas those countries have often seen a rapid jump in levels of debt, New Zealand has seen a gradual escalation. And so while there was really strong opposition when it was first brought in, um, the gradual ramp up of debt has meant that um, I guess there's just been an underlying assumption that people are okay with more and more loans um, and that students will be fine. Um, But the indications I was getting through those interviews is that they're far from fine. Uh, And also it's having a a number of flow-on effects that are really quite um, troubling. So that's been another piece of work. I'm also starting a project looking at um, mobilisation that happened in Christchurch after the earthquakes in 2011 and um, basically some local students um, organised one of the largest civic action we've seen in New Zealand. Um, So they brought together um, at its height 15,000 volunteers to help clean up the city uh, in the wake of the earthquake where there was, you know, uh, rubble and, and silt, um, which is like it, um, yeah, comes up through the ground when the through violent shaking. And so, uh, I've been looking at um, the long term legacies of that. So it's kind of a post disaster type of um, crisis volunteerism, really. 
Um, so that's been another thing. A little bit on climate emergencies. I've been doing a project on that, which is um, looking at the emergency declarations in Christchurch and, and the implementation. So that's a wee bit away from the youth aspect. And then I've also been involved in a project called Cycles, um, which is children and young people in cities, a lifestyle evaluation uh, study. And that's based on looking at young people's lives across seven very diverse cities around the world. Um, that's led by uh, Bronwyn Hayward at the University of Canterbury uh, and also by, uh, supported by the uh, CUSP, which is the Centre for Understanding Sustainable Prosperity in the UK. So yeah, I've also been a yeah, contributor to that project. So that's me in a nutshell, and that's probably more than anyone wants to hear. I'm quite keen to hear about your work. No, okay. that, that, yeah. that was great. No, that was wonderful. And actually, what's interesting is that's where I first uh, heard or read about you is in the Cycles oh, project. Right. Yeah. And I had no idea that you were at Lincoln. Right, yeah. So I just Because I was at Canterbury University right. and then I moved out here, but I've continued my involvement in Cycles because it's an incredible project. Yeah. Right, and I, I think it was so interesting that uh, the Cycles, because I, th I think one of the cycle sites is in India, actually. Yes. Yeah, yeah. and I was reading um, some of the work happening, c coming out of the, uh, so coming out of the um, focus, I guess, on India. Mm. And I, through I mean, I didn't know about the Cycles work in New mm. Zealand, but, you know, ever s since coming here, I've kind of seen that uh, a bit more as well. Yeah. But I feel like that is actually... Um, really i would say needed in a way mm -hmm. because there is you know often i don't know maybe that's how these funding works mm -hmm. is they lump together uh these i would almost call it the experiences of uh urbanity mm -hmm. to uh like income or, mm -hmm. or or where a country is situated right mm -hmm. on those hdi or gni or gdp whatever mm -hmm. and so you don't often get uh lumping together to look at comparative aspects mm. uh, between, let's say, a country like New Zealand and one one is one like India, because mm. you would often end up getting a more South South perspective, or yeah, just because the I, I would I would say like the uh, overall assumption there is that you know, and which is true in a way is that there's this very place based uh, urban mm. you know life happening, mm. and certainly the, I mean. The city, the, the the differences between those cities are so so stark. Yeah. But there's also there is underlying, these are underlying resonances between them as well in terms of what's happening and especially, the place of, children and young people within those cities, which is often characterised so by exclusion in different forms. Absolutely. And so that really does provide a platform, um, and especially like. I mean, especially when you've got a lot of the international um, kind of top-down measurement approaches to understanding what's happening in cities, they are very rarely attuned to the needs of children and young people. Right. Um, and so that really does provide a, a platform to think through, well, how could these be tweaked to be more place-based, but also to be more child and youth-centred? Yeah. Um, no, that's that's very interesting because I mean that's a, that's one reason why I got into the work that I do mm. myself, is because so um, I started out working with I would call it uh, uh, sort of like nonprofits in the agricultural sector in North India and in East India, mm. and um, I would you know kind of go into farms and villages, uh, and often the inter the intervention that the nonprofit had would be with some kind of like user group, you know, like a cooperative group or like a woman's self-help group or something. And for me, it was kind of incredible to see the lack of youth in those groups. Mm. So it was, it was off, like I kind of realized that there was this um, notion of rurality being old and, mm. you know, ur urbanism or like, you know, the city being a young place. And so, mm. What I started seeing more and more is that development interventions are sort of like agrarian reform, often with mm. objectives of justice or equity, were sort of uh, being based on aspirations coming from a certain generation. Because mm. the logic was that the other generation, they're, they're looking to the city. And 
what I what I saw at least in the Himalayas where I did my work in Uttarakhand um, was that there was this notion of migration being a linear mm. and a, a male uh, artifact or cultural process, mm. right? Mm. That you know people just migrated out and that was it, mm. and the way that they connected back to their homes then. Um, at least materially seemed to be quite um, tenuous like okay maybe they're sending money back mm. and so part of part of what I saw was there was this whole literature around feminization of agriculture mm. and then there was this other whole literature around I would say precarity uh, of migrants which was rooted in the fact that they were transitioning out of livelihoods or uh, cultural networks that was no longer, um, you know, around them anymore. Mm-hmm. But what, what I sort of wanted to show was that, A, it was not so much that agriculture was getting feminized, it's just that agriculture, the way it was done was changing, the mm-hmm. way it was done was transforming. And the fact was that these young men who were often leaving the household mm-hmm. were incredibly connected to the household. That mm-hmm. was one. Through what? So one big way that they were connected was that it was impossible for these young people in many situations to uh, have the life they wanted Mm. in the village or in the city. Mm. So the place they had this life was in between. Mm. So it was sort of like uh, this um, bridging bridging together of um, the various, I would say, the various advantages of each spatial location um, to form this almost like this kind of regional modernity, right? This kind of like they were they were um, engaging with different tools of modernity mm-hmm. to sort of produce um, a very unique way of being, mm-hmm. which which like their fathers couldn't quite understand. Mm-hmm. Neither could let's say their employers in the cities, mm-hmm. right? So it could mean something like. Uh, you know, their father's generation were often very sort of driven by getting a permanent government job, mm. right, which would then have security for a long time. Mm. But now, yeah, okay, that sentiment was there, but actually what they really wanted was to have these informal jobs which would allow them a certain sense of autonomy over their own lives, mm. but also allow them to circulate and, you know, kind of draw on and harness those cultural networks of the village, the networks of influence that they saw in the city, mm. because the problem was that they didn't quite, you know, have the ability to, like, they didn't have the privilege to access incredible mm. amounts of, uh, what's say, capital, mm. uh, political or otherwise, mm. in the city. However, given the sort of, um, the, I would call it the institutions of the village, they were often not allowed to, let's say, uh, have as much of a say in certain parts of governance or management. But then it was around things that people in the village quite didn't understand. Mm. And it was about things that people in the city uh, would, you know, not quite uh, allow, like, so, so in the sense that they would find these jobs which would allow them to circulate and act as translators across these, if you can think of it as this vast hinterland spreading out from the city and these nodes of influence and these young people Mm. uh, kind of positioning themselves at those nodes Mm. to act as gatekeepers and translators. And so it was very interesting, like they would spend four or five months at home, like, you know, investing in their building of a house or things like ecotourism or Mm. things like... uh, commercial agricultural practices. So what would be some examples of those nodes? So those nodes could would be things like, you know, um, small census towns, right? Like little towns that would creep up where, um, so essentially, let's say I can give you an example, like one of the young men I worked with, he would basically, and again, this is illegal, but you know, that is a whole different question, mm. right? Like if, <laughs> like legal uh, structures itself, right, are, coming out of a certain elite consciousness and so you know in in that moment that is actually a form of resistance Mm. so anyway um he would be stone mining right he would be like removing limestone Mm -hmm. from dried streams 
and then um, he had like purchased a truck, a pickup truck, a big one uh, with some loans, which another young man had, you know, gotten. So it was almost like everybody was pitching in together. And then the node would be like this small census town where there was this, you know, huge go down where they Mm -hmm. could store these rocks, which would then at night be transported on the national highway where they could bribe the cops and Mm -hmm. get it inside a cement factory. Mm. So then, you know, in that sense, like they were mm, working with what they had, Mm. what they had. And they, you know, were kind of drawing on uh, ideas of both uh, masculinity, ideas of the market, Mm. ideas of uh, what it means to be successful. Mm. So it's, it's almost as if like the the almost like the trajectory of livelihoods had shifted from going from this sort of like you know place-based rooted way of Mm. you know manifesting your whole life to this way where you were constantly on the move however there was you know you you were not putting all your eggs in one basket Mm. and you didn't trust anybody Mm. and that was like the biggest transformation i saw from the older to the younger generation like trust. there wasn't a lot of trust. Like mm. there wasn't a lot of trust tru- in trust in institutions, trust mm. in people. And so, if you know, someone would promise them a job, like mm. their fathers may have been a lot more gullible and accepted that. But now they were like, no, mm. there's something there. Like why would they just give me a job? Mm. Or like trust in, let's say, village institutions to, mm. you know, deliver them to a more um, like a, a state of more well-being. So it was like, oh yeah. Um, you know, we just have to work harder. Like, that's what, you know, their fathers would say. But these guys would be like, no, you know, mm. you're... And one of the things they would say is, like, a donkey works and a horse works. But both of them do different kinds of work. Mm. Sort of like, you got to work like a horse, not a donkey. Mm. You know, like... And so it was sort of like this... Um, they uh, they were like these shapeshifters. Mm. Like, that's the term Craig uses, uh, Craig Jeffrey uses, I know. Like Bahurupia. So it's like there's this Hindi term which means like they kind of they transform themselves in ways mm. as they engage with these spaces. Mm. And so it was a lot of um, I, I feel like I spent a lot of time understanding uh, how these households were, uh, I guess, transforming mm. uh, in, in a transforming India, in a transforming Himalayan region. Mm. And one of the things that I saw is like one of the big aspects of research, which is uh, not quite focused on, is the fact that the way that these young men or young people were connected to their household mm-hmm. was rendered invisible because of the assessment metrics we were using. Yeah. So it was sort of like people going in with, um, you know, metrics based off of, you know, uh, something like sustainable development mm-hmm. or based off of the human development index mm. or based off of a more quantitative measurable things which actually uh, were not capturing mm. and in many cases were uh, going on a very different trajectory mm. and so I had to come up with my own metric mm. so that we could reveal that there was you know well-being for a household was not constituted through this like infant mortality rates and education for women and things like that so that was part of it like a uh, revealing um, a world uh, that was always there however always missed by let's say assessors evaluators you know scholarship and the second thing was to kind of talk about how young people were very actively involved in household reproduction Mm. and i've just talked about the men i mean the young women also played a pretty Mm. important role but anyway you know but also the mobilities associated with it absolutely yeah and a lot of the literature i drew upon was the mobilities literature Mm. to talk about it but um some of the other stuff which kind of came up was this idea of a risky place right Mm. the fact that the himalayas have been uh you know traditionally historically because of literature around it being constructed or talked about as this place of risk. Mm. 
and which is very interesting because compared to what exactly is it more risky yeah. right and then it's almost like also the literature on at risk youth yes in relation to what in relation <laughs> to what exactly yeah. and so it's almost like this is a place that is a risky place so mm. it's there is a th- there is a sense that you know climate change or disasters mm. or all these things just happen here mm. it's almost like an innate quality versus a more structural process versus looking at you know is that really the case or are the disasters being utilized or wielded mm-hmm. by certain political people or certain mm-hmm. powerful uh, institutions to you know uh, get their way and like you know get what they want mm-hmm. and so some of the world that I do of some of the work that I do is around kind of uh, challenging this image of the Himalayas as a risky place mm-hmm. And um, uh, some of the work I'm trying to do right now with some other people is sort of like how the Anthropocene narrative, which in itself mm. is, uh, you know, it destroys so much of the heterogeneity mm. and sort of says there is this global us, even though there isn't. And so kind of looking at how the Anthropocene narrative is wielded in the Himalayas to like get to certain things mm. and uh, you know, maybe silence certain people, sort of reproducing existing power relations mm-hmm. in a way. Well, it was, I mean, because as you were talking, I was thinking about issues around security for, for example, the young men you were working with. How yeah. is that framed? Security, you, how security you Security and, uh, uh, I guess, I've, I mean, it, 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 it's got so many dimensions. I mean, obviously there's physical security, but yeah. there's also security in terms of your sense of place and when and it's often quite place based right, people's right. sense of security but if those attachments are quite spread out across right no that is yeah. a that is a great question and so you know uh, one of the reason why a lot of um, I guess I would say migrant men that were working at what I would call like uh, industrial labor so like they were working at steel uh, plants so they're working uh, building like transformers in a factory or like ball bearings or whatever one of the big reasons that they were uh, kind of coming back home almost Mm -hmm. was because they were exploited so Mm -hmm. there was a lot of violence there's this city in in very close to where I did my work where a lot of these young men were living and it's Mm -hmm. in a special economic zone so that means like you know certain corporate taxes don't apply and Essentially, it's like a free-for-all, like yeah. do what you want. Yeah. And um, so these, these men, many, some of them were like, you know, they got drugged and their organs got stolen. Some of them were like exploited, like uh, they were caught up in a blood racket where someone would like, you know, say that we're going to give you X amount of money if you give us some blood. And then there's this cycle. And so they were treated really badly by, I would say, a lot of these corporate employers right because their uh, fathers had often dealt mostly with uh, government agencies Mm -hmm. when they had worked or they had dealt with you know tourism companies and but industrial uh, labor on this scale um, Mm. is a very like recent thing Mm. for maybe the last 20 years or so and so that was one of the reasons like when you talk about security Mm. is that um, a lot of these men would say to me that, you know, I can, like, because many of them were living in really, uh, I would say, horrendous situations mm. with, like, eight or nine people living in this tiny apartment, and many of them were getting sick, jaundice, typhoid, a lot mm. of diseases. And so they, they saw that there was this, like, overall well-being-wise, like, fine, they were earning a bit of money, but they were seeing that they couldn't quite like mm. save much of that money mm. and it wasn't enough to justify destroying their own health justify sort of um, being away from the family mm. and so they were it was very smart what they were doing in a mm. way that often they were um, engaging with the city in, in like in small doses often mm. like they were doing jobs where uh, mm. they could uh maybe give a couple of months notice and leave mm-hmm. but then they knew that the employer uh, or the contractor mm. would 
you know, hired them back when they came back, let's say four months later, after doing something else, somewhere mm -hmm. else. And so there is this real sort of um, changing job scenario going, which is sort of this like uh, a livelihood situation, which is a lot more mobile. Mm. And it also creates that security where, um, you know, these, these young men have so many places they can look for livelihood. Mm. They're no more like they're not getting very bogged down by one or two employers. But again, this is like a very big world, a lot of different, you know, strings are being pulled by a lot of different people. Yeah. And I think but it's interesting as well what you said earlier about the, um, I guess, the skepticism towards corporates, because that's something that um, uh, came through quite strongly in stuff I was doing as well. And it's, um, I think it's something that, uh, obviously in an utterly different context, yeah. but it is something um, that this is a generation that's grown up, and, and certainly in the New Zealand context, in, in an incredibly um, uh, neoliberal context, but, um, and often that then gets assumed that, oh, these are just little neoliberal actors that go yeah. off and, and do that. But that scepticism towards... Um, current forms of capitalism just right. came through so strongly and that yeah. lack of um yeah not n not entirely a lack of trust but a um yeah a very careful engagement right yeah it's quite no and that's something which was very interesting right like because i feel in middle class india mm. there is a lot more um i would say because we grew up the same way, like never trusting the government, mm. um, but however, having a lot of trust in privatized enterprise. So right. private schools, private, any kind of services that was private. Yeah. And often the case was that it did work, mm. you know, better than let's say the state mm. situation. However, the reality is that I grew up in a small town, um, but even today, close to 70% of India lives in villages. Mm. And so most of India is still um, getting serviced through, you know, state-owned services and state-owned institutions, right? Um, what I found very interesting with the youth in the mountains was that they, um, they look at these institutions almost interchangeably. Like uh. they see the state and they see a corporation <laughs> being just like yeah. an, an avatar of a very powerful entity right. and they are just they, they are skeptical of both at the same time mm. because they th like i heard this you know a uh, couple of times like oh during our grandparents generation there were kings here and then there was the government and today there's the company so <laughs> what has changed right yeah, yeah, so right. they saw that fundamental it's the power imbalance that's yes. the critical aspect isn't it? and they kind of saw that they were like mm -hmm. look you know we've always been the people that have been screwed over because you know we live in these villages we you know study in schools where english isn't the medium of education and mm -hmm. and so there was something very interesting which i saw was that and again, this is for a very specific, I would say, class of mm. people. Maybe I would call them like the lower middle class or like the working class, like just coming out. And most of them are like rural people. Like there, there was this big sort of push towards education, right? Like, mm. and again, I'm talking now about just the men. Mm. They sort of didn't see, they, they don't see a lot of value in education, like higher education. Mm which is very different. On what grounds? Because they don't, they can't do anything with it. So mm. let's say they go to college or whatever, it doesn't add any value mm. to their ability to let's say get a job or whatever mm. else, right? And so it's become very interesting that, like I was, you know, I was writing about this that, and I, I heard them say it as well, mm. is that, you know, I'd like, there are these coaching centers, like in some of these small cities, mm. And some of these guys would say, like, you know, I'd rather sell snacks outside the coaching center than be inside it getting coached because my ability to earn money or like my ability to, let's say, be a part of the economy is much stronger servicing the coaching center versus actually studying in the coaching center. So they saw that, you know, it's like I know Craig has a book as well. Um, 
about like degrees without freedom mm. so they have these degrees but then what do you do with it mm. right it's like um it's it's kind of interesting that again this is you know like mm. for the women however was different because young women were, were seeing education as a way to mobilize uh like kind of restructuring the power within the household mm. so it was sort of like hey uh, i'm an educated woman so that means I now get to decide how I spend my time here because mm. I can teach children, I can like work mm. somewhere else, right? And so there is this very interesting triangle emerging in the in the household. I call it the father-in-law, daughter-in-law buffalo complex. Buff- the buff- the buffalo's livestock. So it's like <laughs> yeah, father-in-law's, yeah. daughter-in-law's yeah. and then the livestock. And it's that because the, you know, the older men, they want this agrarian uh security mm. but then the younger you know the daughter-in-laws who end up doing most of the work mm. are now sort of pushing back against that and mm. kind of using tools of modernity to mm. fight patriarchy mm. which is you know fascinating just to see that happen yeah, yeah. but you know they're you know they're like taking loans so that they can buy hand tillers which are like electric mm. tractors instead of having buffaloes mm-hmm. and so it's it's they are they are definitely kind of yeah wielding uh, certain tools of modernity to like yeah. fight back against their own oppression yeah but no uh the one thing i did want to ask you is that like one of the things that uh i really uh loved here like l- wanted to learn more about was that I, since being in new zealand i've seen that there seems to be a divergence really in like there's these two identities, especially here in the South Island, right? There's that rural past of like hunting, farming, all that stuff. And then there's, you know, this whole idea about like veganism and like climate change and all this stuff. And there is, I I would say maybe a third thing there around like indigenous justice and Maori and all that stuff. Like, do you see uh, young people from these three camps encountering each other much or is that kind of Hmm. going going along in isolation in three directions yeah it's an interesting question um and i think in a way you see them come to a head actually in in this place more than any others um because it has quite a strong that rural identity is much more explicit than in the more urban centers yeah um but that said that pioneer mentality um uh, it's yeah interesting on the um, student volunteer army project I'm working on, which was that mobilisation that happened after the Christchurch earthquakes. Um, when we're talking about what enabled that mobilisation, it was that a lot of the people we spoke to ended up drawing on those types of um, uh, mythologies, I guess, about you know the rurals get it muck and do it. Right, <laughs> you know, so right. they in many yeah. ways they're just underlying the surface but they're they're quite present um and yeah the um thing is that yeah i think we've set them up more as opposing factions than they actually are in a way um and it's spurred on partly in a lot of the general discourse about farmers versus environmentalists and it's been set up that way for quite a while when it hasn't necessarily actually, I mean, there is aspects of that, but it hasn't actually necessarily, it's not that stark. Right. But in terms of, yeah, in terms of young people, um, I actually don't know. I'm going to have to think about that one because um, there's certainly a lot more mobile than there was in which case there could be some more right. intersections but I mean certainly with my and that's just the university student population but certainly in those um, interviews one part of my data that really struck me was the number of students I was speaking to who were saying I didn't make friends until my third year of university or right. fourth year so that yes they're going to these places that are apparently you know big mixing pots yeah. but they're not necessarily um, interacting with different people. Um, yeah. They keep existing networks or they um, 
uh, really isolated and loneliness is a huge issue. Like yeah. mental health in New Zealand, we've got um, uh, the highest rates of youth suicide in the OECD. It's um, it's bad, and uh, that certainly was reflected in a lot of the discussions um, I was having with students who were yeah they were lonely. So, and to, yeah, these different. Ba- I, I'm not sure how much it actually happens. It is yeah. yeah. And do you think like, and you know, and that's something that um, I've been sort of trying to <laughs> wrap my head around <laughs> since being here, is that, you know, it's in a settler colony, right? Mm. There's always that uncomfortable conversation around who are we, mm. right? Like, okay, I know the Maori have uh, sort of, I would say, formalized an identity of who they are, mm. but it almost seems like that was a that was catalyzed because of their colonial encounter mm-hmm. right and so that to an extent that yeah. yeah that kind of i mean i'm not saying again and like, also there's multiple identities as well right yeah. exactly mm-hmm. and however it, it seems like you know like for for maori while there's like a whole universe of identities that they are mm-hmm. um i would say engaging with and so mm-hmm. however there is like a formalization of what we are kind of not right mm. and it's sort of hard to find that in Pakeha or, or white mm. New Zealand I would call it um, mm. w- w- about what they are and what they're not right yeah and I think that's a um, it's quite a yeah I think we've defined ourselves a lot by what we're not in terms of we're not Australian or we're right, not right. you know or we're not um, uh, and and also I think it's um, like what do you but th- also we it's it's a I mean especially among young people right it is such a diverse cohort so sure. uh, in terms of um, uh, Maori but also Pacific um, and uh, coming um, in in the multiple uh, nationalities yeah. and identities within that cohort. Right. Um, um, many who have uh, parents or grandparents from uh, Asia more broadly, and so it is. I mean, it's a, it's among the young cohort that is yeah. this much, much, much more diverse cohort, and, and right. in that sense, I I suspect identities are a lot more fluid. There's oh, others who have done a lot more work in this yeah. space than me, but. Um, yeah. Uh, I think it's something that's really under-recognised in sure. Aotearoa is just how diverse young people are relative right. to older cohorts which are overwhelmingly white right. in Pakeha. Mm. That is, yeah, that is very interesting. And I, I just wonder the kind of effects that will have on, you know, uh, let's say these flashpoint issues like, mm. you know, um, industrial agriculture or climate change mm. or you know, uh, social justice. Mm. And I wonder, uh, are we, like, do you think people are seeing that in the politics today is there's a cleavage between youth uh, politics and older politics? Um, yes and no, uh, because in some, I mean, one of the things with the climate strike, I mean, there was a real effort quite early on to um, ensure that it wasn't a white movement. Um, in Aotearoa and to make sure uh, and to try and make it much more inclusive of um, various groups I mean it still has its critics and so forth yeah but I think there was an effort to try and make it one that was based here Um, and I mean it's also part of the settler colonial aspect because I think as well we centre a lot of our thought in the UK really um, in Europe but actually we are part of the Pacific and um, and it's trying to start actually looking to our Pacific neighbours for, uh, for leadership on these types of issues and um, and I guess, yeah, to centre our voice alongside theirs and, and I think that's been a bit of a shift which certainly our current government has been quite critical in helping that along. Um, uh, wait and see if that lasts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but right. um yeah i it's quite a um 
it's quite an unsettled but also really critical time, I think, for New Zealand in terms of Whoa. yeah, rethink and and young people are really the centre of that discussion because yeah, they are this um, hyper diverse cohort really. Whoa. Yeah. And do you think like um, I mean we are out here in the in the South Island, which for a long time and even today is a very largely agrarian community, mm-hmm. and what do you like? Uh, what do you think is happening with that? Like, do you th- do you see this uh, sort of like youth identities that are tied to ideas of rurality that sort of going through some kind of an anxiety or some kind of transformation, or are they okay with like the way things are changing? Or I think um, I think we need to do a project on this. Really. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think there's yeah, there's a lot of work to be done in that space because there is a I mean. New Zealand's agricultural emissions are the major um, source of our, uh, yeah, um, carbon and methane, our greenhouse gas profile, and so there has to be a huge rethink of land use in, right. especially the South Island, especially the Canterbury region. There just has to be, but there's such substantial um, social justice issues associated with that transformation and identity issues. Um, but also, I guess, the capacity of um, young people in this situation to, like, how they negotiate that yeah. um, in a way that uh, doesn't leave them hanging. And I, that's something, that aspect of it hasn't been thought through at all. Right. Um, and... Uh, and I think there's, I mean, there's some, certainly working with students here, there's some who are just absolutely know there needs to be a transformation. Yeah. Um, there's some who are really aware that this is happening, but are also quite resistant to it because it brings, I guess, insecurity for them. Their yeah. future, which seemed quite planned out, is right. suddenly up in the air. And also hanging over all of this is the huge debt issue because of massive uh, investments into infrastructure, um, into the dairy infrastructure that can no longer, uh, and also the intensification of dairy and the expansion away from smaller scale farming to like large scale industrial farming. Right. And within that, the young cohort coming through, where do they fit in within that? Right. And what does that mean for their, um, yeah, their futures? Yeah. It's quite a. Um, it's not a. <laughs> It's not an easy place to be. It's not an easy place to yeah. be, and I yeah certainly um, working with these students, they they're at a tough place. It's, yeah, and I think as well it often um, it does often get portrayed as a you know um, a bit of a binary in terms of the urban versus the environmental urbanists, you know, urban communities versus the you know um, back in the dark age farmers, yeah, and yeah, yeah. it's not simple and, and they probably yeah. like you know and those those sorts of i would say representations probably make uh maybe some of the literature some of the uh you know words being you know said on mm. media or whatever may almost appear as personal attacks I on, think a, so. on a certain yeah. culture on a certain yeah. subculture right yeah and it's quite um but um that said there is like amazing work being done to try and you know, um, create some of those stepping stones, but it's just nowhere on the scale that it needs to be, given yeah. the the huge transformation the region that we're in needs to go through. Um, if we are going to reduce our our greenhouse gas footprint and in, in a changing climate, right. and also the fact that this region is also going to be fundamentally changed as the climate changed. Right. I mean, we are likely to become more uh, drought. and here we are with intensive dairying which requires huge irrigation like it's it's sort of yeah or like you know pine and you know softwood plantations which would burn up yes if the temperature yeah and that's given us the alternative yeah um so uh i don't blame these young people for being really quite um uncertain in this context and and um and and feeling quite yeah under attack right because yeah. it's it's like I feel in in India the um, the the kids I, uh, the youth I work with in the Himalayas, their sense is that somehow 
there is, you know, industrial or modernization happening in the country and they're sort of being left behind. Like they're, they're sort of being forgotten about and they are, you know, like they are those people in the villages and their job is to act almost like, you know, the sweepers and the, you know, fixers of this giant machine. And many of them are not satisfied with that. They're like, why is it that we are being preordained to, you know, fit into just these slots, mm. right? And so it's very interesting because going off what you were saying, um, what what does like what are the aspirations of youth um, of that occupy a certain intersection of class and race and gender and whatnot? I almost feel like those uh, th that map of aspirations is being drawn not from the youth but from the last generation like mm -hmm. people are drawing let's say uh, a place of development intervention from conversations with older folk in those areas mm -hmm. and so for example like you know giving a family a cow or, or livestock while it may on certain metric you know allow the family some kind of prosperity but if, if I interview, like I interviewed hundreds of young women about this and they want to work as uh, in, you know, as like back office, you know, business process outsourced like coders. And so now there are these little, you know, um, they're called impact outsourcing, right? Like outsourced little places in rural India because now there's electrification and there's internet. And, you know, 19 year olds that till six months ago were mm -hmm. taking care of livestock and today sit and do accounts for Walgreens in the US. Hmm. And again, I'm not mm -hmm. saying that this is the solution and that everybody wants this. No. But what I feel is like there is a real dirt of imagination in it terms is. of what uh, these young people truly want. Mm -hmm. Like that atlas of aspiration is so varied mm -hmm. and so massive. and especially for a lot of the young women who often are literally the last people to be asked what yeah. they want. And so, yeah, seeing that was quite powerful for me. Like mm. the fact that many of them are, now whether this is a long-term solution or not, I don't know. I, I think there's something in that. Um, I mean, certainly, I, I think it's just a way also to Breakthrough. I'm thinking again in the Canterbury context, where it has just been portrayed as this one side versus the other, yeah. and opening up that discussion. Well, what does this co cohort over here, which we haven't actually asked and isn't involved in this debate, what do they actually want when they are the ones who are going to take over this whole thing anyway? Right. And I think it's just a it's a way in from the side, which yeah, yeah it flips. And and I think your point that it's I mean, yeah, just opening up imagination about what's possible and what what are we actually doing and, and what right. does it mean to live well. Yeah. And, I f and I feel like there's a certain ethics of labor, right? Like what kind of a job is a job that a person who is developed, whatever that means, um, should aspire for, mm. right? And I feel like, for example, a lot of the youth I know of, they're almost like choice for this seemingly precarious labor situation mm. would would seem almost like unethical or unimaginable to, you know, like mm. someone maybe um, sitting, I don't know, somewhere else in the world, like in Germany or France or whatever. Mm. And so it's almost like the, like how we think about work, right? Mm. Or how we think about well-being, mm. uh, that space should be democratized um, with that place should be, if I can use that word, decolonized, where people can come in and sort of say, you know, the way that this is, the, the, the benefits I'm getting from this or how this is affecting my life mm -hmm. is, is very different from the way it's affecting yours. So mm -hmm. can we not have this like global ethics around work? Mm -hmm. right on, mm -hmm. on, on, on similar kinds of work in different places may have very different you know ramifications and so mm -hmm. I yeah um, yeah I, I feel mm -hmm. like there needs to be a lot more 
challenging of the ethics of labor itself and how that then connects to well-being. Mm. The precarity is, I mean, we were talking earlier about um, the comparative aspect and yeah. precarity is one of these, it, it, it exists in multiple forms, but it it is a common thread that ties through so yeah. strongly. Yeah. Um, Probably because of global corporates yeah. <laughs> more than anything else, but yeah, 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 and and sort of like this, you know, this this sort of like Rostonian steps of growth. You mm. know, it's like this is this is what a nation state is, and how we gain prosperity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. and following those things, and yeah, mm. and you know, having these export-oriented agro mm. commodity markets or kind of looking at agriculture um, not so much as culture mm. but as um, a livelihood mm. and th that is a, you know that is a balancing act which seems to be mm. a, a lot more weighed in towards the livelihood part mm. and the conversation around how agriculture is still culturally mm. significant or viable or different than what it was 1600 years mm. ago is sort of not highlighted but mm. yeah busy scribbling <laughs> i've got the most amazing list of things now <laughs> no that was that was wonderful sylvia um thanks a lot uh for Such giving me some time just talking getting <laughs> space to think about all these and um yeah uh, i hope we can collaborate on some stuff in the future but also best of luck with all the work that you're doing. This is yeah, very important. Interesting. And it's, I mean, this is the thing is there's, um, I guess, yeah, just sen work that centers youth experience and, yeah. and the current, yeah, global context is so, yeah, yeah. It's, it's lovely having a, <laughs> <laughs> having a friend. No, all right. That's wonderful. Yeah, um, yeah I think.